This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. And once again, it has been a too long break since our last episode, and that is for the very simple reason that I have so much going on in my work with college students at Ma'or, and this show is basically a one-man operation, really very little outside help. So I am not only recording the episodes, but editing and producing them as well, which takes a great deal of time, in fact, the majority of the time. And so it's simply been very difficult for me to get out episodes as frequently as I'd like. I have so many fantastic interviews already in the queue, in the hopper, and just waiting to get them all out to you. I'm really going to try to be consistent moving forward here, doing my best. In any event, getting into today's episode, I'm really excited. Rabbi Mark Wilds is a really interesting person who does similar work to me. He works with young people from various backgrounds in their Jewish observance and education. He based out of Manhattan. And at the same time, he's coming at it from a particular philosophical vantage point, which is unique and created some great conversation. He also is in the midst of a 40-day challenge, which, to be honest, started about 35 days ago, but there's still time to jump on the train in the last few days before Yom Kippur, if you're listening to this at the initial release time, by going to his website, which is linked in the notes. You'll be able to get into this challenge and learn about some tools for personal growth, spiritual transformation ahead of Yom Kippur. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Please let your friends, family, and all those in your orbit know about this podcast and tell them likewise how to subscribe or follow themselves. And now, to our conversation with Manhattan Jewish Experience founder and director, as well as author and inspirational Jewish personality, Rabbi Mark Wilds. We are here with Rabbi Mark Wilds, the founder and director of MJE, the Manhattan Jewish Experience. And believe it or not, although Mark and I have probably not met before, if we have, it's been briefly. But I actually, Mark, think about you often or your organization. And that's because for many years, my organization on campus was called the Maryland Jewish Experience. And <laughs> people always said, oh, MJE. I said, yes, but first of all, we called it MJX. But second of all, it's not the one you're thinking of. That's in Manhattan. So your name has actually kind of been lodged in my brain for, you know, a decade and a half or so. But uh, great to finally connect. How are you? I'm great. And I, I hope I can take all the credit only for the positive things that the Maryland Jewish Experience did. <laughs> Absolutely. 100% yours. And uh, I will also be uh, sending you the bill for your fundraising. Now I have to fundraise for you too. That's, I promise you that fundraising in Maryland is a lot less onerous than it is in Manhattan, or at least a lot less expensive uh, sure. than probably I'm your sure. rents over there. <laughs> uh, although they're not cheap. But Mark, take it from the top and tell us a little bit about where you are from. So I am uh, a Queens boy. I'm from Forest Hills, Queens. And I was raised... Um, I would say uh, poster child, Yeshiva University, modern Orthodox uh, background, and big family of lawyers. And uh, I was training to do just that, to be an attorney. I actually went to law school, passed the bar, practiced a bit, 
And I was uh, sort of following in the family footsteps of being an attorney and living, uh, you know, living the modern Orthodox dream here in America and got a little sidetracked by this outreach stuff. Um, but uh, that's where I'm from. And I'm very, very proud of my upbringing and of my specifically Torah Umada, however you want to call it, you know, uh, centrist Yeshiva University upbringing and background and uh, trying to live that kind of life, whether it was in the field of law or now with Jewish outreach. Sure. So just paint a picture for our listeners. Some of them are intimately familiar with that community and, and some maybe uh, less so or not at all. What was that childhood like? What were sort of the key ingredients and the major ideals and philosophical inputs in your childhood firmament? So I would say, you know, a deep commitment to living a Jewish life, you know, in, in a halachic sense, Shabbat, Kashrut, and um, a full commitment to just Torah, you know, as we understood that, as we, as we were raised with that. But doing all of that from the perspective of engagement in the larger world, because we went, we didn't sort of follow this sort of Torah only approach. We, I was taught by my, my daddy should live and be well, and my mother of blessed memory and my teachers and rabbis that there's a lot of beauty out there in the world. And as long as it doesn't conflict or is not inconsistent with Torah values or Torah ideas, then that could be part of your avodah Hashem. That could be part of your relationship with God. That should be part of your relationship with Hashem. And I very much believed in that, was raised in that. And when I went into YU and I, I it, you know, that only became deeper and more committed. The idea that, you know, whatever it is that connects you with Hashem is good. Obviously, Torah is the main way that we connect spiritually with our creator. Uh, but there are other ways of creating with Hashem that are not in the Torah per se and are inspired. And, and that could actually help us. You know, so um, I became very attracted to the teachings of Salvechik at a pretty young age. And, and then when I was in YU, I was drawn to different, you know, Rabbi Tendler of blessed memory was like the Torah Umadanik when it came to biology and science, the hard sciences. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein Zechotag was when it came to more, you know, humanities and social sciences, like, you know, literature, finding God in the, in the writings of Milton, if you will, you know. And um, I, I wanted to do that with law and I wanted to do that with international affairs. I went for a degree in international affairs and law. And I had this whole plan. I was going to make this huge Kiddush Hashem, save Soviet Jewry. That's, I grew up in high school and college, Soviet Jewry, Fusniks. And we were going to, I was going to use law basically as my way of sanctifying God's name in the broader world. So that was, that was kind of my sort of intellectual milieu in which I was raised. And um, when I came to the world of outreach, I found sadly that there were, I didn't really meet almost anyone who kind of believed in that, that was involved in reaching out to less affiliated Jews. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the most interesting features of your particular organization and work. And I want to get to it, but just rewinding still mm -hmm. a little bit more, where did your own family come from? Where had your parents been from and, and what brought them to that sort of, you know, philosophical perspective? You know, my father's side was from Bialystok, Poland, and my Zadie came to this country in 1920. His passport, a copy of his passport, still hangs on my father's office wall in his office. And my dad is an immigration lawyer. He's been immigration lawyers. Brought people to America because he grew up with a tremendous sense of Satov, of gratitude towards the United States for opening its arms to Jewish refugees, you know, minus what they didn't do during the Second World War. 
and my mother's side the same. My mother, uh, of blessed memory, was from. Uh, she actually was born in Switzerland. Grew up in Liechtenstein as a small child because her family was escaping Nazi Germany, and there were Jews actually who left Germany and moved to Liechtenstein, and they were also able to come to the United States in the, in the early forties and escape Nazi, you know, uh, Germany and Nazi occupied Europe. So there was a tremendous sense that I grew up with on both sides of like, this is an amazing country. Yes, there are Nazis in the world, but there were also great Americans who are tolerant and open-minded and uh, have accepted us and given our family on both sides of my family, the opportunity to thrive here. So, you know, and my dad also sent us, you know, my father's worked for many years with members of Congress to help various clients on immigration matters. And my dad is really a leading immigration specialist. My brother took it over. Dad's retired now for a good couple, good number of years. But I think that openness and that like, that sense of uh, opportunity was very much implanted within my psyche at a young age. So I worked for my Congressman, Gary Ackerman. I worked for my Senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And it didn't matter so much like what your politics were. Now everything is politics. Now everything matters. You know, growing up, it didn't matter. Was he a liberal Democrat? Was he a right? Was he a more conservative Republican? It didn't matter. You were getting involved in the political process and you were being inspired to do something beyond your own Jewish community, but you were taking your own Jewish values. I mean, I remember I worked for Gary Ackerman. He had a mezuzah on his door and his mother had just passed away when I was interning for him. And I rounded up a minion every day in his office. He wasn't a religious Jew, but he was very proud of his Judaism, had a mezuzah on the door. And I said to him, I, I was already, and I, I was, in, I already graduated Yeshiva University. I was already gung-ho about my Yiddish guy. And I was like, I get you a minion. And we had a minion every day during Shloshim for him. So he could have minchans and say Kaddish for his mother. And I, and I walked around with the Yarmulke at the Rayburn building. And, sure. And, right near, right near me. <laughs> oh, right. There you are. So like I, I that all of that I think contributed to this belief. Like I didn't have this negative belief of non-Jews, of non-Jewish wisdom, of like, of course I'm I'm a student of Jewish history, so I know how much persecution, you know, the the Jewish people have been subject to over the over the centuries. But um, the kind of home I was raised in was very grateful for these non-Jews in the United in these United States that um, that took our family in. And, and gave, you know, not just survival, but opportunity to thrive, you know, economically in every other sense. So I think that contributed to this, you know, I think sociologically, at least, to my philosophical outlook on um, synthesizing the best of Torah with Western civilization. Have you been frustrated in recent years? I could kind of sense that in, in the undertones of your comments about how the state of our society has sort of devolved and become so politicized, or there may be a, a strong column of people who don't share that patriotism or that mm-hmm. mystic mm-hmm. vision of our country. Yeah, it's it's disturbing to me because there's more of a focus of what you believe today, and therefore what camp you you know you get plugged into because of those beliefs, as opposed to just like being excited about being part of the political process and just being positive about just being an American. Like, I feel like those days are over. I grew up and I'm not that old. I mean, (laughs) I'm in my fifties, but like, it wasn't so long ago that like, it didn't really matter. I remember Patrick Moynihan, who was a liberal Democrat. He used to go out to lunch with conservative Republicans and he didn't do it for photo ops. 
he did it because he was interested in hearing their ideas. And, and he was an intellectual. He was a great intellectual. I don't know if you know Patrick Moynihan, which is also interesting. I, I've, had, I've interviewed uh, Dr. Lukens on the podcast uh, oh, back in the yeah. day. <laughs> so I worked. I, that's how I got. I worked for David Lukens. He's a great man. And 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 that was also like David Lukens is a very orthodox Jew, and it there was no divide. You know, Moynihan was the one who defeated the Zionism as racism bill in in the United Nations. He represented the United States in the United Nations. And you didn't have this divide. The Republicans are pro-Israel. The Democrats are like little wishy-washy on Israel, like you know people think today. And I don't know. So I think we, I think we really do need to return a little more to, hey, the starting point is we live in a great country where we could speak our our, our feelings and we have free press and free speech. And uh, let's get into some of the issues and see where you stand on the. But like the the dividing line was not as as stark, and people were just more respectful and interested in hearing what the other person had to say, even though they disagreed with them. And by the way, there were always fights, there were always you know disagreements, and there was always politics and and partisan politics going on in Congress. I mean, I, I'm not trying to glorify the past. I'm not trying to whitewash the past here, but it was it was nothing like it is today. I mean, it's 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 become ridiculous in my opinion. Uh, and I'm not saying the differences are not important. But we're not starting out with a being positive and excited about being part of the political process and feeling good about it being an American. And this is the kind of America I believe in versus the, that's the kind of America you believe in. But we're, you know, I just think we, we need to go back to that a little. Absolutely. So you were getting this uh, this very diverse and sort of broad and integrated education. And you decided to go to, into law. Was that sort of a default position because, uh, <laughs> you know, all nice Jewish boys was, go to law school? Or was there yeah. a passion for the law? It sounds like your father was, you know, very involved. So yes and yes. It, it was a default on some level because, you know, Jews in law. Um, you know, it was a Jackie Mason who said that, like, if you have a really smart son, he goes to, you know, he becomes the doctor. He's not so smart. He becomes a lawyer. If he's an idiot, he becomes an accountant. You know, really <laughs> so like, so, you know, I was somewhere in the middle, you know, I guess I could become a lawyer, but it was a little more, it was also because of my whole family, um, our attorneys, not just my dad, but my brother followed it and, and my, my sister-in-law and all my cousins. And it just became like, uh, the thing, but I will tell you, I grew up with a very, again, positive, uplifting, sense of the law. My father did not go into the law simply to make money. He went into law because he believed in this country and he believed in the legal system. And that's the way you can affect change and help people. Whether you're in a criminal attorney, you're an immigration lawyer, you're a corporate lawyer, it didn't matter. My, my dad was a professor for 33 years at Cardozo Law School. My brother just celebrated his 12th year of teaching. He took over the course that my, and I, I was in that class, by the way, I took my dad's class in Cardoza. Yeah, he didn't grade my paper. I know what you think. <laughs> he had his, yeah, um, but he knew my handwriting because, you know, you didn't write your name, just throw your social security number. You know, law school, uh, they, they, they want to depersonalize you as much as possible. So no names, <laughs> just numbers and uh, you know, and, but um, so my father loved the law. He lived the law. It was, it was a calling. It wasn't simply, I wouldn't even call it a profession or a career. You know, it was it was much more for my father than that. And he was, you know, as I said to you, the picture of my Zadie, of his father coming from Bialystok on his wall in his office. That's what animated and inspired him to go into the law. And um, he was making more money as a date camp 
excuse me, as a counselor, as an arts and crafts counselor, it's no joke. My dad, when he graduated from, he graduated top of his class, NYU Law School, and was making more money as an arts and crafts counselor in Camp Winsaki <laughs> in the 1950s than he was as a lawyer. And it was hard to get, you know, they wouldn't take Jews into law, into big law firms um, in those days. So he had to either start his own practice, um, you know, get, have a lot of mazel from above and, or starve a little. So he really went into it as a calling. And that's the way I saw the law. I did not see it simply as a, as a way to make money. I saw it as a calling. And I went into it for that reason, too. I became very impassioned about Soviet Jewry and human rights. And I studied international law. And I also got a degree from Columbia in international affairs. I got a master's degree, which I combined with law school. And I was set on saving our Soviet brethren caught behind the Iron Curtain. That was my my calling. What did you do to get involved with that? Were you part of the rallies? And I went to all the rallies. I went to, I worked for the Coalition of Free Soviet Jews. And I became very impassioned about lobbying. Uh, the reason I actually worked for my member of Congress, Gary Ackerman, is because I went to Washington to lobby on behalf of a certain Soviet refusenik. Her name is Carmela Raiz. Beautiful, amazing story. This woman was with her husband. They both became Bali Chuva in um, Russia, in Lithuania. They were from Vilna, Lithuania. And she was an extraordinary woman who came to the United States. My dad got her a six-month visa to come to America to fight on behalf of her family to get out of Russia. They were denied. Listen to this hour. They were denied for 25 years. They tried leaving Mother Russia, and they weren't permitted out. She came with her, one of her two sons to America for six months, and uh, I and some others were working with her to help her get out. She didn't want to come to America even. She wanted to go to Israel. She was an ardent Zionist, and uh, she eventually got out. She lives in a remote bet. She's a very inspirational woman. And I became incredibly enthralled with the movement because of people like Carmela Raiz. Yeah, we've had some incredible people uh, in previous years. We've had, um, of course, Malcolm Honeline was one of our early our early guests. And he, of course, he was at the forefront of that whole movement. Yeah, yeah, but, he's um, a hero of mine, Malcolm. Yeah, we've also had um, Natan Sharansky and Yosef Mendelevich, so some of the wow. early and great refuseniks. Um, wow. And I remember myself being at the uh, the big rally in, I guess it was 86. Yeah. Um, so I was a young... Oh, 87. Young boy. That was 1987. 87. Yeah, that was eight, and I was nine years old at the time, but I, I still have vivid memories of it, uh, you know, the packed crowds and the subway cars oh. uh, and the, the endlessly stretching crowds. Um, I'll so tell you, really can, did. Can, I, can I tell you a story of what happened at that 1987 rally? I would love rally. to hear that, yeah. This was unbelievable. Carmela Raiz came with her 10-year-old son and she said that if they could not get out of Russia by then, by when this rally was going to be, she was going to stand in front of the Soviet embassy in Washington with a placard around her neck with her son, let my people go. And Glenn Richter, he should live be well. Glenn Richter is one of the heroes of the Soviet Jewry movement. He started the Triple SJ, the student struggle to free Soviet Jews. Glenn Richter threw Bernie Kaplan, Zuchrona Lavracha. So sorry, I'm dropping all these names. Bernie Kaplan was a, was a simple Jew from Staten Island, but very powerful guy. And he called me up and he said, Mark, there are 12 or 13 buses coming from Stern College and Yeshiva University going to the rally. Can you orchestrate? Can you help? I would like everybody to walk single file in front of the Soviet embassy, free 
Carmela and her family. So when you when you focus in on one person, it personalizes the whole movement. And I will never forget this. We walked, and Glenn Richter said, we're not chanting, we're not screaming, we're not yelling. We're going to have a silent walk. And you're going to see this woman with her 10-year-old son wearing a big black velvet yarmulke. They were Bali Chuva. And we're going to walk in front. And I have to tell you, I'm getting chills just sharing the story. It was one of those moments in my life because it looked as though 12, 13 buses from Wallyu and Stern came to Washington just for that because they were not where the rally was. They were where the Soviet embassy, a few blocks away. And they were just standing there. And just the, it was just the saddest sight to see this mother and this child. But she, when she saw all of us walking single file with signs for her family, there was only this one family. That's who it was. And it was one of the great, really, moments and memories of my life. And so I wanted to go into Soviet Jewry. I wanted to, that's, um, that's what I wanted to do. And, and, I, and there's no question that my father, you know, he didn't say these words, but he was my inspiration for that, no question. So you were practicing law, and what kind of law did you go with into your business with your father, or what uh, were you doing specifically? So I, wor- I worked in a big corporate law firm on immigration. You know, they thought because I was the son of Leon Wilds, I must know everything about immigration law. So I, I guess not- he, had, he had made a name for himself in that field by that point. Oh, yeah. My dad was was like, you know, my dad had very uh, celebrated clients, John Lennon amongst them, who he represented, and... Um, a lot of other famous people who were having immigration issues and problems. I got to meet John Lennon, actually. You told me you went to the rally when you were nine. My ninth birthday, I met John Lennon. My dad was very close with him and fought the Nixon administration for four years uh, to keep him in this country. Yeah, so my dad was like, and he was the president of AILA, which is the American Association for for, uh, Immigration Attorneys. He used to speak in front of thousands of people and like, he wrote the book. My dad literally wrote the book on immigration law, and he was a professor for of many years. Um, he should live and be well. He lives here on the Upper East Side. We're still incredibly close. So he, so that was like, and, and he got me a job working in a big fancy law firm, Millbank Tweed, Hadley McCloy. I know it sounds really waspy. I worked on political asylum issues, and I worked for my dad, and that's what I was going to do. And then I got sucked into this whole outreach thing. It just like changed everything. <laughs> okay, so that's a great segue. Uh, what was going on? You were obviously in the uh, the white shoe firms, the a big law, uh, presumably in Manhattan, in these you know beautiful marble uh, marble floors, and and living that life, and probably working your way up towards partner or whatever. My favorite the, uh, part was that if you stayed till eight o'clock at night, they sent you home yeah. in a really fancy car. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say you got that. dinner. <laughs> I, they they gave you dinner. The problem was like there wasn't really kosher food there. So uh, like all of their free food went kind of, I don't know, didn't really do much for me, but no, whatever you get like free car rides, you know, like car services home. And yeah, uh, my wife, made- my wife always makes fun of me that uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a workaholic, slight mm-hmm. understatement. So she always jokes around. I, you know, I, I always get excited when people say, Oh, if you stay till eight at the companies, they would get you dinner. You could order in, you know, from any restaurant for up to 25, $30. And my wife is always laughing. She says like, I would do that every night. You know, and like, what a cheap date I have. Like, just for 25 <laughs> bucks, I would work till nine, ten o'clock at night just because I get free dinner. Like, right. you could just, you know, work till six and buy yourself dinner. But for some reason, where does you, where, what, what kind of work does your wife do? My wife's a speech therapist, but she knows that in my workaholic sort of brain, if I was in a company like that, I would just do that every night just for the, for the free dinner, which is kind of <laughs> ridiculous if you think about it. But 
She likes to poke fun at me for that. Yeah, those perks, the perks. I was also enrolled in YU for smicha, not because I wanted to be a rabbi. I was one of those many students in YU that just wanted to learn more. I became very enthralled with my Rebbe, Raparnas, he should live be well. He was my Rebbe in YU, and I wanted to stay in the Shir. And YU didn't let you, um, you couldn't just stay and learn. They don't like that. Yeah, I had to like be in a program. <laughs> so I did the Chavir program. I, I, I did like the Chavir program and that lasted for a year. I finished that. And then the only thing left was Smicha. But I did it not to become a rabbi. I did it just to learn basically. But then when I got to my fourth year, that was the year you did your Shemush, like your apprenticeship, your internship. So I wasn't going to do that. That's like for the people who actually want to become rabbis. And that was not me. But my high school principal who I'm still close with, said to me, you know, Mark, you came this far, just do an internship, get the smicha. It's nice to have the degree on your wall. And, and, and he was like, he was making a good argument. And you never know, maybe one day you will be a rabbi. You never know, you'll have it. I said, fine, but where am I going to do this? Well, he says, you love outreach. Now, I was doing NCSY. I was an advisor for NCSY. But the reason I was an advisor for NCSY, to be perfectly honest, is because those were the only places that would give my band gigs. Oh, you have a band. Okay, great. <laughs> I was a drummer. I've been playing the drums since I'm 12. And um, by the way, you have a great name for a drummer, Wilds. I mean, you know, <laughs> how awesome is that? You just, uh, the crowd goes wild. You know, you're going wilds on the on the drum set. It's so I was. I mean, um, <laughs> I was a pretty good drummer. I still am. And I, you know, the only two gigs our band was getting was working for the 92nd Street Y. We got gigs for them in NCSY. So I took a lot of NCSY and I, and I was just around the outreach. And then there was one rabbi there who got me actually off the kit, off the drum set and into a circle to talk to some of the kids. So I was already doing some outreach. Which so rabbi my, was that? Rabbi Mark Cohen. Southern NCSY, eventually. Yeah, very good. He Ooh. was the regional, regional director. The regional director of Central East. East. He was, I, I went to Central East. And he was in Central East, so I mean... That must have been a long time ago because he subsequently became the Southern Region Director. Like Sally Friedman was Central East for Sad's Band for many years. Yeah, so I, I was involved with Central East for about three years and also New England. My friend Ari Salomon, I don't know if you Ari Salomon, Ari. yeah, he's in Israel, yeah, sure. Yeah. Biking, you know, the biking guy. Yeah, he's the biking guy. He's one of my closest friends to this day. And Ari schlepped me into New England Region. He also sang for our band. I was originally Tova Vohu, which is a pretty good name for a band, Chaos and Disorder. <laughs> And a then Jewish, I was, a religious punk rock band. <laughs> it wasn't punk rock, but we, um, I know, but with a name like that, it kind of has to be, right? <laughs> yeah, a little. We, we 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 wrote our own stuff. I don't know. We we're pretty awful. And then we <laughs> started a band called Segula Orchestras, which was like we had to come up with something a little nicer so we could get bar mitzvahs and weddings because that's where the money was. I actually played bar mitzvahs and weddings for about eight or nine years. I played like one or two a week. It was good money. I did it in college and graduate school. Anyway, I was doing NCSY, so going back to my convoluted story over here. So I decided I was going to do the internship, and that would give me the smicha, the rabbinic ordination. And somebody told me about this guy, Effie Buchwald, who runs these beginner services. And sure. my principal said, why don't you start a beginner service in your neighborhood where you're from in Queens? And then you can check off the internship, and then you'll get the smicha. You'll become a rabbi, even though you're not going to practice. You'll still do the law. Little did I know that that little rabbinic internship, that beginner service that I started in Forest Hills, Queens, totally shifted. It rocked my life. I basically flyered up Queens Boulevard 
Yellowstone Boulevard and 108th Street. Those are the three main strips of apartment buildings in Forest Hills, where I'm from. And I just picked a date randomly. I was going to kick off a beginner service. I got all the materials from this Rabbi Buchwald, the National Jewish Outreach Program. I watched a three-hour video. I remember it was a VHS. <laughs> and I, I popped it into that on the fifth floor of YU, University. They have like they had Betamaxes where you could put the, the tape in. And I sat there and I was, I loved this guy, Ephraim Rabbi Buchwald. Oh my God, he was so engaging. It was interesting. He was talking philosophy in the middle of the davening about tefillah. And he had like students there and they were talking. And it was like, oh, this looks interesting. Maybe I'll do this. And I started a beginner service in Forest Hills, Queens. Eight people showed up on the first Saturday morning. And I had no, I had no infrastructure, nothing. I just literally, I made up a flyer and I, I papered up you know, the apartment buildings. And I asked my dad if he would pay. I didn't have any money. I asked my father if he would pay for an ad in the Queens Tribune. And uh, there I was running a beginner service. The eight turned to 10, the 10 to 15, 15 to 20. I had about 25, 30 people coming every Shabbos for the next three years. It was only a one-year internship. But I just kept it going. I was and in what, love. What was the, I'm just curious, what was the demographic breakdown? Now Queens is very uh, Bukharian heavy. What was the crowd like back then? Russians, oh, Bukharians, or mostly, just general Americans? Mostly general Americans in there. Uh, I had all ages. So I had like middle-aged people and I had my age people. I was 23, 24 at the time. Um, no, I was actually, I was probably 22, 23, 24 when I was running this. And I just, I don't know, it was like everybody and their grandmother came. I had older people, I had younger people, I had middle-aged people. And I had some Russians. I had Russians, not Bukharians. Bukharians had not yet moved in. This is pre-Bukhari. Now, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of like Moscovians, Jews from Moscow and Leningrad that moved in. So some of their kids came. Very hard to get their parents. You know, like the older, the gold teeth and the coming from Russia, like the communists, the socialists, they were like, they didn't want anything to do with religion. They were happy just to get out the, the heck out of Russia because they were persecuted for so many years. But we, I started getting some of their kids, by the way. I have some incredible stories about that, by the way. But I don't know if this is going to be a three-hour podcast. So. <laughs> we'll see if we can uh, circle back to it. Yeah. Right. So uh, you, did this, you did this yeah. for, for a year. Yeah. And, and it sounds like it was very energizing for you. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And... You know, because you could, it was a classic Rabbi Buchwald beginner service. Like we didn't do Tvarm Kedusha. Like I didn't have a chazin and I didn't have to worry about like, you know, being mafsik, like interrupting in the middle of davening because it was just an open forum. So we would recite a prayer, talk about it. And if anyone had any questions about it or something that it brought up, then we would just discuss it and talk about it. I don't run that kind of minion anymore. I still run what I call a beginner's minion, but we have a chazin with Tvarm Kedusha. And because people love the whole Karlbach sing-along thing. And I wanted to get into that. It's very hard to have that and interrupt the davening with a conversation. You know what I mean? So, um, but, you know, we shake it up a lot still. I, I've been doing this for the last, ooh, long time. About 27 years since since that beginner's minion in Queens. I haven't Amazing. stopped. I just been, I went from that beginner's minion in Forest Hills to getting recruited into Manhattan. Rabbi Alan Schwartz at OZ asked if I would do the same thing in his shul. And then Rabbi J.J. Schachter, who's been a mentor, a teacher of mine for many, uh, many Rabbi years. Rabbi Schachter is actually going to be one of our next. He, I, I interviewed him recently, and we may put his episode 
out maybe after yours. I'm not sure yet. The order, mm-hmm. so either before or after. But yes, he was just on the podcast and he phenomenal is, person. Is. I have endless, endless Akarasatov gratitude to Rabbi Shachter. He's the one. There are only a few people I could point to and say, if it wasn't for him, there would be no MJE. But he's one of those people because he helped me start it. And he was the one who called me up when I was still at the Queen's Jewish Center and asked if I would come and teach a class at the Jewish Center, not necessarily for Jewish Center members. He said, I'm here on West 86th Street, and there's so many Jewish people that are not connected to our shul or to anything Jewish. And I want to I want to have a class. He heard about me and he called me up out of the blue. I felt very honored. It's a long time ago. Would you come and teach a class? And uh, by the way, that class, uh, I came to the city. I taught the class. It was called Judaism in the Contemporary World. I just made it up. It's an eight part class. And I met my wife in that class, by the way. That's how I met my wife was in that class. I didn't start dating her in the class. I didn't think that was like, uh, you know, cool. But that's how we met. You know, when she was out of the class, graduated from that, we started. Does your wife, your wife herself had not grown up in an Orthodox community. Correct. My wife's from Great Neck, Long Island, the holy city of Great Neck. But she uh, grew up affiliated conservative. My in-laws of blessed memory uh, were very affiliated but not observant. And they belonged to the conservative shul in Great Neck. And my wife started searching when she graduated. She went to Wisconsin for college and she went uh, to Madison. And, um, the Badgers. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, did she go to Great Neck North or South? That's the real she question. She went to South. She okay. went to South. And she prided herself because <laughs> she said the snobs went to North. Uh, the Persians went to South. <laughs> right, right. Well, today everything is, is different. It's all Persian. Yeah. 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 So you got into Manhattan and you started teaching this class. And then how did that convert into a full-scale outreach initiative project organization? Yes. Because MGE has been around for a while. and um, Yeah, MGE has been around 23 years. And it was not so clear. It's a good question because it was not so clear that I could make a, a living out of this. I was still practicing law on the side. And I, I didn't. But then, like, I started, um, you know, because I, I didn't know if I could really earn a living doing this. I was, you know, it's not like I was going to have my own synagogue or my own, you know, classroom where I would be like, get a salary. And uh, I had all these graduate degrees. And I, now I'm a lawyer. I have a master's in international affairs. I have smicha from YU. I'm all dressed up and I got nowhere to go, basically, because um, <laughs> it's not like there was some, you know, job waiting for me out there. So, I was Rabbi Alan Schwartz's assistant for two years, and then I got recruited by Rabbi Lukstein, Shalim B. Well, who was also one of my teachers and mentors KJ. And great, at KJ. And I put in two years at OZ, uh, and I ran an outreach program for them, and it rocked. I loved it. It was basically taking what I did in Queens and moving it up to a notch. You know, but I was only I was getting like a part-time salary, and but I had now I had like all of these like observant singles on the west side who i could work with you know it was like cheap labor you know basically and it was all it was like friends of mine who were also in smith and while living on the upper west side and girls that i dated that didn't work out i was like <laughs> hey and we you know you become friendly a little and i and they were good role models i was like and they were learned they went through the yeshiva day school thing they had a year or two in israel i was like help me out and they did i had like probably when i was at oz I had probably 15 to 20 super smart, motivated, modern Orthodox, like from singles helping me 
run this program. And we brought a lot of Jews into Yiddishkeit in those two years. Incredible. So I guess you just sort of recognized a real need and that there was this thousands and thousands of not observant or minimally affiliated or unaffiliated Jews in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know if they were all on the Upper West Side or, you know, mostly on the Upper West Side, probably throughout the city. But mm-hmm. what did you see and what was your kind of vision? And when did you say, okay, I'm, I'm going all in, I'm going to launch my own project here? The all in, I have to give uh, credit to my friend, George War. A lot supporter. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was I went from OZ to KJ and KJ was a no brainer because they were actually offering me a, like a, a, a proper salary. Like, it was like a, a shul with money. Yeah. No, <laughs> say, no shortage of, no shortage of, uh, who would have thought like, you know, and, and over there. Yeah. So, but it was weird because I basically what happened was I was now taking more of a, a mainstream rabbinic position in, in becoming the assistant rabbi at KJ. And my job was basically to assist Rabbi Lukstein in the main synagogue, give sermons when he wasn't giving a sermon, run the other minyanim, and officiate at you know life cycle events, and also be a Rebbe at Ramaz, which I really enjoyed, by the way. It was part of the gig was I was going to be a teacher for ninth and 12th graders at Ramaz, which I really, really loved. And so at that point, you were totally out of the law practice. So now, like, right, so now I'm out of the law practice, but I wasn't and this is this was the the rub at KJ. It was difficult for me because I'm leaving law to now be a regular rabbi. Like I understand leaving law to go into outreach. My that my calling. My dad has his calling. I'm gonna have my calling. And and by the way, I wasn't just going into law for the money. I was I was gonna free Soviet Jews. Now something else happened, which changed that, and that is they got out. <laughs> now <laughs> the Iron Curtain fell. By the way. This is a terrible thing. The Iron Curtain fell, and my first reaction was like, what am I going to do? I mean, Darn. Was, it was terrible. It was like, okay, three million Jews are now free, but what the heck am I doing? I just got a degree from the Harriman Institute for Soviet Studies at Columbia University, and I'm, I'm like a Sovietologist now with a law degree who can fight for human rights and international law, and now there's no Soviet Jewry movement anymore. Uh, that was actually happening at the same time, which is important to note. Anyway, so I'm at KJ. I'm enjoying it because Robert Lookstein was such a pleasure to work with and for. And it's a beautiful shul, and I'm still very close to a lot of the Balabatim in the shul. And actually, MG has its east side base at the shul. I don't know if you know that. MG has three sites in Manhattan. I did not know that. West side, east side, downtown. Our east side is at KJ. They very graciously host our east side program. But um, my favorite part of, well, one of my favorite parts of being a rabbi there was was sneaking out of shul at the end of the main synagogue and going up to George War's beginner's minion. And I had a precedent for that. My good friend, Rabbi Adam Mintz, who I succeeded at KJ, I actually just bumped into him yesterday. I've and, never met uh, him, but I've listened to a lot of his uh, Jewish history lectures online oh yeah, in the past. He, he's a brilliant guy. He's a <laughs> wonderful those. guy. And I was filling his shoes. He was, he was there for seven years before I was there. So he told me anytime you want to, you know, go upstairs, take off the top hat and the tails because very formal shoe. We just have to wear a top hat, <laughs> Hamburg Friday night top top hat Saturday day. Go upstairs and say a little piece of Torah at the end of George's minion for the beginners, the beginners minion. And I would sneak out after kedusha and during Musaf, and I'd go up and say, and that's how I developed a relationship with George. And when I finished my stint at KJ, when I was done there, I did a two-year you know, I guess, service there, if you will. 
And now I was at a real crossroads. I'm 30 years old. I'm not really sure what to do. I had an offer from another shul in Long Island to be a rabbi of a synagogue in Long Island. I could go into my father's firm, go back into law. Soviet jury was dead now. I mean, there was no real program for me. You know, they were just doing resettlement, but that was not my interest. Or I could do outreach, but where would I do outreach? Now, Aisha Torah offered me a position. Was that with Yitz Greenman at the time? Who was around yeah. at the time? Yeah. And my friend Avram Goldhar sure. um, was the one who was sort of courting me to come and, and work for them. And it was a very attractive offer because they were doing amazing work. And I'm a huge fan of Aisha. But hashkafically, it didn't fit. I felt like there was something not off about them or on about me, but different. And I felt that like my hashkafa, my, I don't know, background, my worldview and my background is going to get lost there because that they they don't really subscribe to that so much. So double, double click on that for a second, because this is, this is of great interest to me as somebody who works in this field, uh, in my, my main, uh, vocation and, uh, and just kind of a student of the field. What do you feel like would have been missing? What would have been maybe repressed in your own approach or just different? How would it, how would it have translated differently that you felt you needed to, you know, have your own stage, so to speak? So I, it wasn't as much as I need my own stage, as much as this particular approach of synthesizing the best of secular culture with Torah, I think would have been lost to some degree. I didn't think that they were so interested in that, you know, insofar as it could be a used as a tool for Kiruv, they were probably interested in any outreach person, including myself, is always looking for a hook. And I'm starting to teach a class tonight on Midos development, the Rambam, Hilchos Tshuva, Hilchos Deos, and I'm going to use James Clear, you know, atomic habits. Okay, yep. so everybody does that because you want to, you know, use a language that people can understand. You want to resonate. Belief, yeah. <laughs> you want to resonate, you know. But my belief was deeper. I believe that we were supposed to ideologically kind of bring out the sparks of holiness that are found in the secular world and bring them into the, the Torah and bring them into your avodas Hashem, into your service of God. And I didn't feel I'd have a voice for that so much over there. I, I felt that, not that they would stifle it, but I, I felt that um, Asia Torah is a very well-established outreach organization with a particular philosophical outlook, and, and which I respect to this day. They're, they're leaders in the field. But I felt that that particular love for literature and other non-Torah ideas would not get fully expressed. And, you know, the people who would lose out would be the Jews themselves. In other words, like, wouldn't it be better if we had another organization that had that flavor of Torah so that we could capture Jewish people that weren't fully engaged, you know, in in a different way? You know, and by the way, when I first started MJE and I came to the West Side, somebody said, what are you doing? What do you need? This Asia Torah is already here. So I said, look, my goal is not to take from other organizations or to compete. My goal is to bring out of the woodwork Jews who, for some whatever reason, Asia is not going to. And there are other groups also. It's the Young Rice, Zechronel of Racha. Ineni was a very, she was a very powerful force um, in Manhattan. And she, she was able to pull it. That's why I'm not a, 
I'm not a believer in one organization for everybody. Everyone says, oh, why don't you guys all get together and do the same thing? I don't think that's good for the people. You know who actually. says that? The, the donors say that. <laughs> always. <laughs> the donors always say that. Duplication. I was like, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, in your work, you know, uh, in your, in your uh, you know, whatever, tax firm, why don't you get together with all the, oh, because competition is good, it's healthy, and, right. you know, different approaches, whatever. Okay. <laughs> so I, can't, I can't service everyone. Okay. Totally, there you go. totally, totally. Those are the people who make those comments because they don't want to keep giving. They don't want to be yeah. hit up by five different places for the same cause. As far as they're concerned, it's one big stolen, you know, outreach, Kirov. You know, let's just make it more efficient, you know, yeah. but making it more efficient makes it sometimes, well, in that way, less effective. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Because, because I think Esther Young had a certain lure that Ish didn't. And I think yeah. I have a certain lure that Esther Youngrice didn't have, or that this person, and I think that's really important for us. Yeah, you to- draw different kinds of people, absolutely. Yeah. And people are, are animated by different things. You know, it's interesting though, one could argue, just playing devil's advocate, that yes, perhaps you had a different hashkafa, different philosophical approach on some level, but isn't that academic? In other words, in the nitty gritty, actual implementation, the execution of programming, what difference would that make? A beginner's minion is a beginner's minion, you know? A right. class is a class, you know, a trip to Israel is a trip to Israel. Why would your philosophical perspective on the inherent value of, you know, Milton, if you want to take Elizabeth's mm-hmm. PhD or something like that versus its utilitarian value as a hook? Like, what difference would that make in the actual execution of these, this kind of programming? It's a big difference. I wouldn't say in the actual programming, it's not going to matter whether you're doing a Shabbos dinner or a class. But the kind of Torah that that Jew at that Shabbos dinner hears or at that class or the kind of answer you give to a question when you're quoting from non-Jewish sources and you're not doing it just to sound smart, you're doing it because you think it's advancing the cause and it's speaking like the Rav or Salvechik did in a certain language that's going to resonate with people. You're going to be able to, in my opinion, connect Jews that otherwise would not connect to that other organization that doesn't have that resource, that doesn't have that arrow in their quiver. And um, I do think it matters. Now, it may not matter level one level, but it's going to for sure matter what kind of baltruva that's going to develop also. Now, you'll say, what does it matter? As long as we get people from. And I hear that. And I'm very proud of some of my students who have become very orthodox, very observant, and uh, are now part of more the yeshiva shefeld. And you're right. In a sense, like, does it really matter that they don't believe in uh, Torah Mada and they have a little of a dimmer view on religious Zionism than I do? Like, not so much. They're sending their kids to yeshiva. They're going to be. But, you know, if you care about ideas, <laughs> you care about, like, what Torah is supposed to represent. And I am a bit of an ideologue. Then you you want people to observe a certain perspective on Torah. Now, again, I do, I do want to make this clear. We don't come down hard on that. We don't like, you know, if you really want to be religious, you have to be religious like this. Um, but does it give me? I have a student. Yonatan Yudrit. He's a rabbi in Eretz Israel, and he's a great Torah scholar and great. He runs an outreach program at Hebrew U now. He became observant through our programs at MG, not just MG, but Israelite and other organizations. You know, I will tell you right off the bat that, like, yeah, he gives me a lot of nachas because, like, this guy is a big kippah wearing Jew. He lives in Beit El. He's like living the religious Zionist dream. He studied English literature before he became religious. He found a way to connect to God through that and still quotes all that. 
And that gives me a lot of nachas, not a question. But I'm really good with someone who doesn't believe in any of that and just gets into the Torah mitzvahs too. Uh, but I do think it does matter because there will be some Jews who will be more attracted to your program, to your classes, to your shurim, and to your path in life because they see that you are machshiv, that you give recognition and not simply pay homage to some secular philosopher that they are enthralled with, but because you really see wisdom in that. And that that helps some people grow in their Yiddish guide. That helps them become more comfortable with Torah because you're comfortable with some of their philosophical interests. You understand? So I do think it matters. Uh, does it matter with everyone? No. To those who are not that intellectually subtle, who are not as intellectually bought into any system or don't, don't have their favorite, you know, uh, writers or philosophers, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter so much. To me, the million dollar question is why isn't there more of this and why isn't there much more of this emanating from the modern Orthodox world. I actually wrote an article partially addressing this in a journal called Cloud Perspectives. It was founded a number of years ago. I don't think it's still really functioning, but kind of about the state of the Kiruv movement at the time. And mm -hmm. part of it was a critique or analysis, but really a critique of the modern Orthodox world and its sort of dearth of activity in this particular arena. NCSY being the one meaningful example. And even NCSY, one could argue to a large degree, isn't necessarily a modern orthodox, you know, mouthpiece or whatever, whatever word you want to use, because many of the employees are coming from the more yeshiva world. And it was actually even founded by Rabbi Stolper, I think was a student of Rabbi Hutner. So, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a modern orthodox outreach program in the way that your program is. And the question that I have is why, and I, I advanced in that article, this is maybe almost 10 years ago, a couple of theories about that. But from your perch, I would love to hear your thoughts. First of all, do you, do you agree with the, the assertion? And second of all, if so, what's your evaluation, uh, your explanation as to why that may be? So first of all, send me the article. I'm sorry I haven't seen it. I'd love to read that. And there was something that I wrote up for Jewish Action for the OU uh, on this particular issue as well. Uh, and I do agree with your assessment of NCSY. I think that's an accurate depiction of the leadership. And I love NCSY. And as you can see, I give a lot of credit. That's how I started out. I think the modern Orthodox do not take to outreach for a couple of reasons, some practical, some ideological. Uh, start with ideological. Ideologically, your typical modern Orthodox Jew, and I hate to say the word typical, there is no such thing, but is a little uncomfortable with the idea of anything that sounds like proselytizing. It smacks of like the Christian right, but there's a little deeper because I think there's a little, I don't want to say hesitancy, there's a little questioning going on within our own community. And if you're not feeling terribly confident of your own frumkite, your own Yiddishkeit, particularly when it comes to certain philosophical issues, Shemayim, you know, revelation, you know, those types of things, and you're not, you haven't worked them out. Now, a lot of Orthodox Jews haven't worked these things out, but they're more confident that we're right. We have the truth. Let's go out and share it. If you're living, living a little more of a Torah Mada, where it's a little more subtle than that, and you're a little more self-critical, and you're taught to be self-critical, because that's the academic world from which we emerge, where we don't just accept everything. Okay, we question it, we discuss it, and we love books like Rabbi Lamb, my mentor and teacher, Zechon Bracha wrote, Faith and Doubt. Oh, what a great title. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And and he talks about the place of doubt within faith. And we sort of celebrate that you're going to ideologically have issues with selling something because how can you sell something that you're going to start asking questions on right away? Now, I actually think, and my response to that is, I don't know if you want the response. You just want to. I would love it. I was going to ask you for the answer. My, my, so that's great. My, my answer no, to that is give over your struggles, give over your issues, share with them that like, this is a core belief of Judaism, that the Torah comes from Hashem. I will tell you, I don't think I can prove it, but I think that there's a real rational basis for it. I'll give you the Kazari argument. I'm writing this up, by the way, for Corin right now. I'm doing a basic Judaism book for them. But do I have questions? I certainly do. Here they are. And here's how I deal with them. Here's how I live with that. What, you don't think Ravon and Lichtenstein had such a Shiloh, had a question? And he used to quote from his Rebbe, you mentioned before, Rav Hutner, and the others, when he would have a philosophical issue, he knew that his Rebbeim, who were smarter than him, he said, which is hard to understand, had these questions. And they had answers. And there are approaches, and we could be intellectually open and honest. But when you're dealing with these questions, you know, it makes you less apt to want to go out and sell it. Okay, that's A. B, there's another reason, ideologically, before I get to the practical. Another reason, B, ideologically, is that the whole you do you and I'll do me, because modern Orthodox Jews are more in the secular world, I think that's crept into our community. The pluralism has, has become a, an embodied value. Yeah, and I'm, I have that issue. I love my staff. My younger staff, I have these issues with. People I've hired, who I respect tremendously, who I've hired to be role models for Frumkite, they're in their 20s, because everyone in MG is 20s and 30s, we reach out to 20s and 30s. So I, I'm in my 50s, I can't, I can't keep doing it. I need other people their age. So I've hired people and they are very reticent when I say to them, you know what, I think this person is ready for tefillin. Call them up, get together, sit down, talk to them about getting a pair of tefillin for them. They only have to put it on once a week for 20 minutes, Sunday mornings, they're very reticent to do that. And I was like, dude, you're working for a Kiruv organization. <laughs> it's Kiruv 101. That's what we do. When they're ready to put on fill, well, I don't know if I agree with you. I right. don't know if people exactly know the next step when they haven't had that background. No fault of their own. Of their own. And I have these issues. Um, I'm curious what you think about these two ideological issues, actually, because you've written on this. So it's excellent critique analysis. I mean, I, I, of course, I'm saying that because I agree with it. <laughs> I mean, I, the, and it's interesting. The first one is more descriptive and approvingly so, I think, in, in, from your perspective. In other words, it is much more difficult to communicate passion from an area of, of grayness, from a place yeah. of, yes, I think it's true, but is anybody you know, coming and say, you know, Amuna Pshuta, sort of simple faith, this is the reality, this is what it is, it animates my life, and let's do it. You know, and you should do it too. It's much more difficult to communicate that kind of passion. Now, the answer to that would be that, that I, the way I push back on people is that, okay, but at the end of the day, after all it's said and done, after all the subtlety, after all the nuance, after all the gray, bottom line, rock bottom, do you believe that in this stuff? And they yeah. say, yes, then it's okay. So then yeah. why aren't you comfortable ultimately going out and sharing with others? That's the great answer. That's a great answer. And Lamaisa, I know you're believing it because you're living, you're not living a lie. Right. You're not waking up in the morning. Well, there are, there are some people that are living a lie or consciously right. at least that that's right. or the practice. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's and by the way, that may be what's right for them at that particular time. And you're I agree, those people should not be engaged, you know, in right. and that would be inconsistent intellectually for them. 
but for others, you know, that's one. And number two, yes, I, I absolutely agree that there's an egalitarianism or a pluralism that has crept into the monorothex community as a result of, you know, as a byproduct or uh, occupational hazard of yeah. Yeah. deeper engagement with, yeah. with the modern world. And, um, you know, I, I see this all the time. You know, I work on a college campus that has a massive number of monorothex students. Maryland, the largest, Maryland. In Maryland yeah. the largest probably in the country. And yeah, an amazingly vibrant and powerful Hillel, you know, an incredible Jewish community. Many, I, I often joke that it's like the uh, it's like the Upper West Side of college campuses because <laughs> there's communities and sub communities, and every weekend, every Shabbos, there's own eggs and there's this. I mean, there's so much going on, and yet, how many of them look at outreach as a value, and even more than that, would consider doing something with it? You know, the person sitting next to them in class, the person they meet, you know, in intramural sports, and there's as many Orthodox Jews as there are. There are. 10 times as many, you know, non-Orthodox Jews at University of Maryland. And what, so to speak, an army that could be if people truly value that. And there was, you know, heart to heart, Hart Levine tried to did something with this at some right. point, but to really mainstream that, that it's just not a reality in the modern Orthodox world. And I find it frustrating. And often I think the modern Orthodox world is very suspicious of, of the cure universe because again, they view it as overly simplistic they view it as whatever the tropes might be and sometimes they might be right and sometimes they're just it's misguided stereotypes but the the bottom line is still there in terms of the the outcomes and kind of one of my dreams would be like wow what if these kids were educated uh, you know in their gap years to go out and do something to be wow. comfortable to be ambassadors and to be they can reach people in a way that rabbis can't just because yeah. of the yeah. the peer situation so anyway you know who does, you know, does, you know, does that a little Benny Friedman is a good friend of mine. An from, Israelite. Uh, from, he was from Israelite, and now he runs uh, Oraita with Rabbi David Oraita, yeah. You know, he says, and I don't think he just says this, you know, for fundraising purposes, but he says that he's training those guys during their gap year, because most of them are going, they're not going to Hawaii, they're going to college, they're going to secular college campus to be ambassadors. And by the way, I don't know if we should be giving up on the modern Orthodox community and awaking that sleeping giant. That was a term from Rav Noach Weinberg. Of yeah. Rav Noach Weinberg. Awaking the sleeping giant was, you know, and I guess this is what H tries to do with Project, Project Inspire. Inspire. But I think the modern Orthodox community is much better poised to do this because we are, we have more connections with people that are less affiliated, much more. And we're not leveraging them. Now, I think some of the reason we're not leveraging them is because what you and I are discussing right now the hesitancy, the subtlety, the lack of passion. But I think you just gave an excellent answer, like which is, dude, you're living this life, unless you're an orthoprax, which some people are, but a lot of people are not. So I go to these hotels for Pesach, and I talk about this stuff a lot. You know, I'm just calling residents a lot. Of, and a lot of people come over like, Rabbi, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to invite a beginner at my Shabbos? The problem is most of them don't live in Teaneck or even in Great Neck, <laughs> you know, but I said, well, there are ways of dealing with that. You have to call your postsake in, in terms of driving and all that. But I really think, and I haven't done this, uh, I would love to launch a program whereby we actually leverage the power of the modern Orthodox community because, and I will tell you this, and I, I probably don't have to tell you this, you're on cut, you see this, like we take for granted how integrated we are in the secular world and how committed we are to Torah and mitzvahs. And even though all of our problems and issues, we're pretty committed to Torah and mitzvahs. We take it for granted. Now, my wife, who I mentioned before, is a Balat's Chuva. And before we met, she was starting to veer a little more towards the right. Because that's the way most Balat Chuva go. That's who the leaders are. That's She's like, if I'm going to give up the secular life, 
if I'm going to stop eating this food and stop going out to bars on a Friday night, it better be for something that's really compelling. It better be for something that's like passionate and exciting. And unfortunately, modern orthodoxy doesn't look passionate and exciting enough. Now, I, I, there's another philosophical answer I want to share, and that is Kabbalah and Hasidus. I've taken a little of a deeper dive the last eight, 10 years of my life into Kabbalah and Hasidus. I teach Tanya the last year and a half, two years, and I'm, I'm finding some of the ideas there very compelling for me personally, spiritually, and I'm starting to integrate some of that into my teachings and my classes. And I feel that that, you know, even though I'm not a chassid, I'm probably never going to become a chassid. Um, my son, who, my oldest son, has um, become more of a Breslover uh, type. He's been very much into that. He learns in a Kabbalah yeshiva in Yerushalayim called Blesha. Wow. He's also getting smicha from YU, and he, he's a musician, and he's into meditation. He's like, you know, he's... He's the real deal in terms of that. And he's very L'Shem Shemaim about it. Very open, loving, like he's my hippie dippy son. And, um, you know, in, in the best sense of the word. And yeah. um, he's really introduced me to a whole, just a whole world of Torah that I feel is passionate and beautiful. And you can live and adopt that and make that part of you without becoming a chassid and without having to seclude yourself. And you could sort of have a little of the best of both worlds living that kind of modern orthodox lifestyle, if you will, with a little more of that passion that can come from the Torah of Rav Nachman or the Baal Hatanya or just even like Ramchal and Maharal-esque Torah, if you will, you know. So I, I, I think that might be another answer. And that's the language that I think our contemporary society is speaking. The language seems to be converging with a lot of ideas that are out there in the secular world. I feel like it's a little of a compromise on the philosophy I was raised on. You know, it's a little of a sometimes con conflict, but I'm trying to navigate it because it's very compelling. Well, in fact, look, a lot of the most interesting work on Hasidic texts is coming out of the modern Orthodox world, especially in Israel. The Tilumi world is really, you know, in the Gush and places like that. Yeah. Uh, Shagar was, you know, yeah. um, and all this work on postmodernism. And it's ironic that you have you know, what you would imagine to be, who you would imagine to be staunch rationalists have become the champions and expositors of Hasidic thought. And that's the whole Chabakuk, you know, Chabad and, and uh, Breslover of Cook and, and so forth. It's, it's ironic in a sense, but maybe it speaks to people's frustrations with or perceptions of the limits of pure rationalism and yeah. a sense that there needs to be something more out there or, or that they can't justify their faith entirely in rationalistic terms, whereas perhaps somebody more to the right does feel more secure in those rationalistic proofs. I'm not sure whether that's all conjecture, but it is a, no, definitely no, an inter interesting no. sociological just, insight. By the way, you uh, just described my 19-year-old son. My 19-year-old son, he's in his second year in Mivaser. In, oh, he was my, my alma mater. <laughs> oh, you went to my... Oh, beautiful. Great yeah, place. Yeah. So he spent much of his high school years in medieval Jewish philosophy. Kreskis and Rambam and Albo, Albo, and he wrote stuff and he's... Uh, he's just always very philosophically oriented. And Tell now he's kid. <laughs> Leon Hari's a bright kid. He's out of the box, like, and he's got a rebellious nature. He's 19, you know, like, but now he's so into Rav Cook, and now he's so into Rav Nachman, and now he's so into all of that and kind of synthesizing. I just think it's important to have a little both. I do. I, I don't think all of one is great. It's just hard navigating because some of it is contradictory. Right. No question. But I love the way you put that in terms of the 
I don't know if it's a disenchantment with pure rationalism. Um, on the other hand, you'll get accused of being superstitious. Magical thinking. Magical yeah. thinking. and like, uh, But if it's a deep understanding of that Torah, oh, it's very powerful. And I don't think anybody makes fun of you anymore for that kind of stuff. I, I don't see that so much. And I see the way it resonates with my students. By the way, this is creating a tremendous issue with the book I'm writing because they wanted me to write up my basic Judaism class I've been teaching for 25 years. Start like You get it done in a year. Give me 16, 17 of your classes. I cannot even tell you how long it's taking me now. And one of the reasons it's taking me so long is because I'm trying to figure out a way of sneaking in some Tanya and some Kabbalah and Hasidus into it because if it's going to be a basic Judaism for the next 30, 40 years for people, please God, then it's got to have that kind of Torah in it. I think I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think, I think it's going to speak to a, a large subset of people, maybe the majority of people kind of that. And look, if you think about it, this is not an entirely brand new trend. You know, Rabbi Lamb himself, who I've started, I interviewed his grandson, Ari Lamb on this podcast a while ago, but I've started um, the last maybe two years already reading a lot of his sermons. They, why he's been putting out on a weekly basis. And I just love them. Oh, and, they're incredible. But, they're incredible. But he himself was an expert in Hasidus and, yeah. and, integrated that and he was you know he wrote the book literally <laughs> on Torah and, so, and by the way and by the way the Rav Rav Salvatric who's like you know the leader of the rationalist right, of course camp. His, his first great teacher was Chabad Malamed but it's not just Chabad. that the more the more you read of the Rav's Torah that has come out in the last 20 years which is the stuff that was I think from lectures that were written up the more the Kabbalah you can see that's there that's underlying much of the hashkafa that he's expressing it's just it's there by the way i have an amazing can i tell a story tell the story <laughs> rabbi riskin told me the story rabbi riskin was one of my teachers he, should live sure. well, well, he was my... the pioneer really and in, in, if you're talking about outreach uh beginner yeah. services you know and yeah. especially from the modern orthodox vantage yeah. point you know that was uh his his early work uh, rabbi riskin rabbi riskin's the one who put in rabbi buchwald he hired rabbi buchwald as his educational director at lincoln square at lincoln square rabbi yeah he's the one who revolutionized outreach on the upper west side in my opinion shlomo karbach and shlomo riskin the two shlomo <laughs> okay so rabbi riskin told me that in 1970 he went to russia okay he went at the behest of the lubavitch rebbe he was a big fan of the Rebbe. The Rebbe was sending rabbis to, and he was a young Wayu Musmach, uh, probably still learning at Wayu. He was already teaching. He was teaching at Wayu from a very young age. He stops in into the great synagogue in Moscow, Davin Mencha. It's a very cool story. He goes in, he sees 10 old Jews learning Gemara before Mencha. And uh, they break up to Davin, and the head, the Magid Shir, comes across the table and walks over to Rabbi Riskin to show him where you're from. He said, from New York. 1970, Moscow. He says, where do you learn? He says, why you? He says, do you learn by, by my Talmud? He says, who's your Talmud? Yashaber, my Talmud. He says, what? what? He says, Yashaber Salvechik. He was my Talmud. He met the Chabad rabbi that was the Malamed for the Rav, that taught him Chabad Tanya as a small Tanya. child. And the, the, the Rav said that the book was small and the Gemara was big, so they'd be able to hide the book. Every time his grandfather, the, the famed Rav Chaim, would come, they'd put away the Tanya and pull out the Gemara. Until, by the way, Rav Chaim fahered the Rav, saw he didn't know anything, 
and then went to his son, Rav Moshe, and said to him, what are you doing? What's going on? And they fired that. He says, from, I didn't fire him, but from now on, I want you to teach him. Rav Chaim told Rav Moshe, from now on, I want you to personally teach my grandson. And, that's, <laughs> and he spent a decade learning by his father. He learned how to learn from his father, sure. learning from Rav Chaim. So anyway, Rabbi Riskin's telling me this story. And... This Chabad rabbi wrote, a, scribbled down a little note and gave it to Rabbi Riskin and said, can you please hand this to my student? He goes back to New York. He tells the Rub the story, hands him the note, and the Rub breaks down. He reads the note and starts crying. I don't know what was written on the note, but this is real. And he had such a love, you could see, for, I mean, you see the Reb, the relationship he had with Lubavitcher Rebbe. Sure. But, but the Rub was a towering intellect. This wasn't just like a nice guy who happens to be the rabbi of a big Hasidic group. The Rebbe was a genius. The Rebbe understood that too, that like they had such respect intellectually for each other. So I feel that there's enough, like you you mentioned Rabbi Lamb, and I have the book right over there on the shelf that the, he translated all these Hasidic texts. Because Rabbi Lamb had on one side of his family Hasidic blood also. And he took that very seriously. And he was like the proponent of modern orthodoxy. In a sense, maybe even more than Rav Salvechik, because Rabbi Lamb wrote it up. He wrote the book. Right, and Rabbi Salvechik was really a brisker at heart. Right. And Rabbi Lamb sort of putting it together into words and formulating it. And, you know, we actually named our most important program at MGE for Rabbi Lamb. It's called the Lamb Fellowship Program, because he got to, he was here. Uh, I'm at the Jewish Center, and this is where he davened after he was no longer the rabbi until he passed away just, you know, recently. Um, I had the zuchus of knowing him and seeing him regularly. You know, he would walk in to get his talis and fill in. I'd introduce him to students. like, And uh, and those sermons that you talked about, they're prophetic. They're not just good sermons. They're prophetic. He he spoke about things in the 60s and 70s when he was talking about Vietnam. and he was talking, Like, all this stuff applies today in 2022. It was unbelievable what he wrote there. So let's start to wrap up. Tell me a little bit about just exactly what MJ does do or has oh, been doing. Before, by, by the way, yeah. before we get into that, I never answered your question. So <laughs> the crossroads, I'm sorry, this is like a, you got the ADD part of me here. The crossroads, <laughs> when I went to KJ that time and I had all these different choices, George Rohr, I'll say it quickly, uh, I called him up for advice. I did not call him up for money. Um, I really respected him just intellectually, like uh, as a person. And I, I just knew him from the beginner's menu that I'd been coming up and saying a Dvar Torah at for the last two years. I called him up. I said, I got this pulpit offer in Long Island. I can go into my dad's firm. Or I have this pipe dream of starting an outreach organization. But I don't know. Like, you know, I said Aish offered me a position. And he knew that the work I did with, at OZ on the West Side beforehand. And, and Rabbi Schwartz offered me space there. I said, I'm sure Rabbi Schachter could give me some space at the Jewish Center. But I'd have to do this myself. I, I've never raised money. I don't know. What do you think? He said, give me a couple of days. And he called me back and he said, I think you should do the outreach thing. We got enough pulpit rabbis and we certainly have enough lawyers. He said, the Jewish community could do without one more Jewish lawyer. He said, it was a very funny line. He said, but an outreach organization with your particular, you know, bent, da, 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 I would help support that on one condition. You have to be all in. You can't dabble anymore. And I was like the king of dabbling. I didn't want to commit to any <laughs> one thing. You No more law. If you take the money I'm going to give you, and he wasn't offering me all the money. He was offering me about 20, 25% of the first year's budget. 
I remember exactly what the number was. And he said to me, I'm offering this to you, but I'm not offering it for every year. You can come back next year and ask for me again. And if I can afford it, I'll do it again, but I may not be able to. I'm offering you this money on the condition that this is all you do. And then, of course, I went to my dad, this person I went to for all my guidance and advice. And it was hard talking to my father because he really wanted me to go into the firm. He was a little partial. But he said, look, I got to follow my dream, bringing people to this country. If this is your dream, then do it. And I'll support it, too. But if it's not your dream, come into the firm. <laughs> you know? And I did it. And the first year was an experiment. And I said to myself, if I can't recruit less affiliated, unaffiliated, less affiliated Jews into my organization, into my community that are not currently going to Rabbi Buchwald's Beginner Service at Lincoln Square, Esther Youngreis is a friend of Rachel's amazing program at Hineni, or Aisha Torah's program, because Aisha was on 83rd, Hineni was on 70th, Rabbi Buchwald's at Lincoln Square, 67th, and here I'm going to be on 86th Street. Then there's no need for this. Then the Jewish community is just throwing, putting money where it doesn't belong. And Baruch Hashem, there was a real need. It grew very quickly, thank God. And we've just been building it all ever since. Tell me about the, uh, you have a challenge going on right now, like a 40-day challenge. Tell me about that. So COVID really brought me out into the um, social media world because that's, that's how you get to talk to your people. So I started a WhatsApp group. And every day I would share another idea. <clears throat> just I literally a daily and it just kept growing more and more people were joining it just three four five minute piece of torah on anything one of my students i don't know if you know alec goldstein he started kodish publishers yes i, um, I, I only i know the name um why do i know the name maybe i've read some books recently that have had his his name on them is that possible yeah so he's a publisher and he was in i've been teaching i teach at yu uh basically i've been teaching for the last 14 years an outreach in training the, in seminar. The program. Uh, yeah, well, I, I teach in, um, I used to teach at Stern, a beginner's level classes, but now I teach in the rabbinical school at YU to train uh, rabbis to go into outreach. Um, so that, that's why we, we were talking about that before. I do feel we can be doing some more, and which I have been. And it also allows me to find new talent. You know, who's that, who's coming up the- You get first pick. <laughs> I get first pick, exactly. <laughs> So one of the guys that was in that class was on my WhatsApp group during COVID, Alec Goldstein. And, and, and he used to be a tutor for one of our programs at MGE. We have lots of classes and events and social programs, but also lots of Torah and classes. We have one-on-one -on -one learning. So I'm always looking for good, learned, I guess, modern Orthodox from singles to come and learn with a, with a beginner. And Alec was one of our tutors, a uh, very smart guy. And he called me up and he's like, these WhatsApp things are great. Let's write up the top 100 and put out a book. He already had his publishing house. I'm like, 100? I don't have time, man. I could barely breathe what I'm doing. He goes, I'll help you. I said, let's do 40. 40 days from Rosh Chodesh Elul to Yom Kippur. We'll take all the Chuvo connected themes. And that's what he did. He actually helped me write this uh, and put it into form. And uh, it's called the 40-Day Challenge. We did it last year. And this year, we have over 1,500 people doing it. Every day, people read a little chapter in the book. And... You know, that's what I found works. Quick, digestible pieces of Torah and with a little thought question afterwards that you can fill in. So it's like a little bit diary that you can keep so that by the time you get to Yom Kippur, you've done some prep work. You know, most people walk into Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, which is sort of like the, the Super Bowl in the, 
in the Jewish community, you know, especially for Jews that are not coming to shul the rest of the year. It's a lot of our population. And they're just we're waiting for the magic, the, the high holiday magic to hit them. And it often doesn't. And that, in my opinion, is because we've done very little preparation. So this is a nice way. You read a chapter and I have a WhatsApp group. I have about 13, 1400 people listening in every day on the WhatsApp group and um, probably another 1500 or so that, you know, got the book just this year. So it's, it's good. It really caught on. So it's an actual physical book that people can read, but they can also hear the day's passage read yeah. as like a voice note. Yeah. So I don't read the passage. I'll summarize the essence of the passage and then add something new because people who read the book last year don't want to just, they read it already. They don't want to hear the same Torah. So I add a little new thing every day and a little, little new piece of Torah for the WhatsApp people. And it's very enjoyable. I like it. I find like with MG ears, people are looking for wisdom. They're looking for insight as to how to live their lives. So if you can demonstrate that Torah has a compelling way of living. And here's the other thing. It goes back to our conversation before. You can look at the lives of Jews who observed Torah and somehow make a case that they're happier. Because happiness is what the, the first book I wrote, which is called Beyond the Instant, which I happen to have it here. Uh, Jewish wisdom for lasting happiness in a fast-paced social media world. I would say this is the number one issue for people in their 20s and 30s. A generation struggling with happiness. Even though we've we've got certain technology and money and other things that even our great-grandparents could never even conceived of, we're struggling with happiness like no other generation before. So I have 10 lessons in this book about how uh, living a life of Torah and how Jewish ideas help bring about happiness. Now, happiness, as far as I'm concerned, is a byproduct of meaning and purpose. By the way, Rabbi Lamb wrote that. Add that Rabbi Noach Weinberg, of course, which is, demonstrates the, yeah. the convergence yeah. that's ultimately there at the, at yeah. the high level. 100%. Happiness is one of those things you can't pursue directly. What you have to pursue, in my opinion, is a life of purpose and meaning. And as a byproduct, that produces happiness. And the question is, how do you find a life of purpose and meaning? So I have 10 chapters of how Torah you know, brings purpose and meaning in 10 different areas of life. So that's what that book was about. And that's really what MGE is about, is really demonstrating how specifically the mitzvot themselves you know, the Balatanya would be like how the mitzvah, you know, connects your soul to something greater. But here I'm saying that that connection is going to enable us to live a more wholesome, content kind of life. I use the word content because the happy word is more like pleasure. Pleasure, we all know, is fleeting. And we're all guilty of this, of just feeling really good when something great happens in our life and feeling really not so good when something bad happens. The circumstantial highs and lows. But we can't ride that wave for happiness. We have to look for something deeper and more everlasting, and that's contentment. And that can only come from a life of purpose and meaning, which I believe Torah and mitzvahs are designed to give us. You know, that's what I kind of preach a lot. Where, Where can people learn about the challenge and, and learn about MJE in general if they want to? Well, obviously, they can Google it, but is there somewhere specific to direct people? Yeah, if, if, you, want, if you want to know about MG programming, <laughs> if, you're, if you're in your 20s and 30s, not as connected uh, or want to deepen your connection or you have friends that are less connected by the way rosh Hashanah kipper time is a great time to introduce them to mge we have three high holiday services going on in the three sites where we are mge has a west side east side and downtown we have 18 people on staff now nine full-time nine part-time and we have literally around the clock 
programming literally every day of the week. Tonight, I'm teaching classes. We have one-on-one learning. We have Shabbat dinners, high holiday services. Just can't, We just brought 50 people to Israel on an amazing trip. We do summer trips to Israel, ski retreats. I'm giving you the commercial now. Ski retreats in Vermont in the winter and spring retreats in the, the Berkshires. A beginner's minion every Friday night. Friday night lights, Karbach davening, Shabbos morning, explanatory minion. So anyone's interested, it's all on jewishexperience.org, www.jewishexperience.org. Or you can follow me on social media, Rabbi Mark Wilds on Facebook or Rabbi Wilds on Instagram. It's all there. The 40-day challenge is all on that stuff um, as well. Or you can just Google. If you want to buy the book, go on Amazon. That's the fastest thing. You can buy Beyond the Instant or you can buy the 40-day challenge. Uh, If you want to join my WhatsApp group, just go on jewishexperience.org, click on the 40-day challenge, and you'll be able to join the WhatsApp group that way. Rabbi Mark Wilds, the founder and director of the Manhattan Jewish Experience, as well as an author, attorney, master in uh, Jewish education, was it? And, uh, so oh, that else. was international affairs. But master in international that, affairs. That was the least helpful degree. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we can use some, some help with international affairs nowadays if you're looking yeah. for a career change. But right. that being said, so grateful for your, for your time and so fascinated by your journey and grateful for all that you're doing for the Jewish people. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate your probing and your questioning and getting into some of the real issues that we're contending with because, um, you know, that's all happening in real time. So I appreciate talking about that stuff. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.